0: Father, we declare your goodness. You are so good. And in a season when so often we've talked about what we've lost, what we don't have, what we miss, our worship brings us back to the place of reminder that we are so, so blessed to be under your goodness. Even in our morning even in our sadness, and even in our struggle. You are God, you are good, and you're for us. Lord, as we turn our hearts now to your Word, to try to hear from you, we ask that your voice would cut through the din, the busyness, the anxiety, the fears, the hopes, Your voice, you and you you alone, for to whom else shall we turn? You alone hold the words of eternal life. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, you guys. So I think I shared a couple of weeks ago that I'm, one of the books I'm working through right now is Eugene Cho's um, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk. And I'm thinking of a sending a copy after last night to both of our presidential candidates. Um, Or maybe if I had enough money to every American household right now, because it seems like in these moments it's hard um, to to see so much goodness in people's interaction with one another, and often these things are hard, so one student even called me out recently and just after chapel said, "Um, I miss all the good, inspiring news of Scripture, and it feels like it's just heavy right now. And so my prayer coming into this week is that we would be reminded of the goodness of God to sing out enjoy, to put on a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. I was inspired coming across one of the stories um, in this book and I just wanted to share it with you quick as we open. Eugene Cho recalls the story of how in 2017, he was going to visit um, some Lebanese Christians working with World Vision, and they were right at a church on the border between Lebanon and Syria. And you'll remember, of course, by this point in time, 6 million people within Syria had been displaced and homeless, and another between 5 and 6 million had fled as refugees into other countries. So 12 million people homeless because of the unrest that had been taking place In Syria and the refugees were flooding the borders of neighboring countries to the point where they were basically at capacity they had nowhere else to put these people in fact in Lebanon at this time most of the NGOs estimates were that 1.5 million people had flooded into Lebanon so they went to visit a Lebanese church that had actually been incredibly successful had a lot of great Lebanese business people and by every measure and standard this church was growing and booming. This Lebanese pastor was leading a large and successful church made up nearly of all Lebanese congregants. But once when he was praying for the future vision of his church, he sensed that the Holy Spirit was convicting him to do the unimaginable, to open his church and welcome Syrian refugees, to care, to love them, to house and to feed them, to be Jesus them to love them like he would pastor me shared vulnerably how at first he struggled with this conviction and kept saying jesus am, am i hearing you correctly in this and finally with much reservation and fear he shared this vision with his congregation and it didn't go very well His congregants, in fact, were furious about the audacity he had to propose the idea of inviting those Syrian refugees, nearly all Muslims, into their Christian church. Even worse than pushback, he began to receive threats from both his church and the larger community. Eventually, some folks started to leave the church, and then many and while he didn't share the specific number, local NGO leaders told me that upwards of 90% of his congregation left because of his new vision for it. 90%. Let that sink in. If you've ever been a church planter or a pastor, that is not a very good model for church growth. And yet, Pastor Mahir felt that he needed to obey the Holy Spirit and did his best not only to open the church to house refugees, but to welcome them in and to love them. But then something amazing happened. Some of the Syrian Muslim refugees, because of this level of kindness, began to inquire about the church's beliefs, about their faith in Jesus, and what would ever make someone to do this for the stranger, even their enemy. And soon some of them actually started to come to the worship gatherings. And then soon some of them started to give their lives to and follow Jesus. And soon some of them were baptized. And the next thing you know, not only did the church regain the 90% of the congregation that it had left, but it began to grow beyond what it was before. Seeing the growth, even those many who had left the church actually came back In revival and in repentance, Pastor Mehir kept obeying the Holy Spirit to welcome and love them. Sometimes the most powerful sermon we can preach is the one that we can only embody. At a time when words are so often used as weapons or as ways to create distance between us and hurt within us. We return back to the reminder that places like this, acres and acres of refugees, 12 million displaced people seems like an absolutely insurmountable task to even be able to begin to think about, let alone enter into. But when Jesus told us that you will have power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, He wasn't playing with words. He was promising the presence of God. And it needs to continue to break our hearts. And the way Sam talked about last week, compassion, this visceral, deep response within us that just aches and hates the sight of sin that makes us want to enter into and suffer with in order to alleviate the pain that others feel. Martin Luther King Jr. said it like this, Any religion that professes to be concerned with the souls of men and is not concerned with the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that cripple them, is a spiritually moribund religion in need of new blood. You see, we were given a faith that allows us not only to have Jesus walk beside us, but Jesus to enliven us, to be within us, to call us to live out fruit that only he could bring about, that would be so revolutionary it would transform the world. In the passage that we've been looking at this semester from Colossians 3, go back to the beginning, it says like this, Since then you have been raised with Christ, Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated. Seated at the right hand of God. So don't look at the insurmountable task in front of you. Focus your gaze on the one thing of where we're towards. We're all headed. Anchor into that. Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. For you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, Now we get to the skipped a couple verses there where he talks about taking off the old self and names the sins that we need to address, and now we move into this movement of growing into the likeness of Christ. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues. Put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. I want to go back to the way that this little section here kicks off. Therefore, because you are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with... And then the list begins... But before we go into the specific virtues themselves, and Sam talked about compassion last week, and I want to talk about the next word in this list this week, kindness. I just want to show you how the lead-up to this is actually created. There's three things that are said over everybody. Paul's teaching often works like this. Most of his letters are constructed in such a way that it moves always from the indicative to the imperative. He says, this is who you are, these are the present realities, and now because of that, this is how you are to live. So every time he comes back and gathers his people, he's reminding them of the indicative, of the present reality of who they are. You died. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Therefore... And then he goes on to describe. And these key terms here are really important, and they have a deep historical rootedness already when God begins to reveal himself way back in the earliest pages of the Old Testament. So I want to focus on him here. You are God's chosen people. You've got to understand this choosing of God is not God chooses um, people that he thinks will be the most effective for him because they got the biggest and brightest resumes, because they scored the best or they're the most popular. Like Pastor Mehir, who built a church growth program in addition by subtraction and including refugees. Like my friends in West Africa that I get to go visit every year who build churches by starting orphanages. And somehow it just works to meet God in the margins and in the least of these, to demonstrate kindness. Remember when you were a kid in the playground? and sports were being played, and it would be like, okay, we need two captains, and then everybody else lines up, and then you start picking who you think would be the most talented and most advantageous to your side. This is not that kind of picking. This is not the kind of choosing where you've merited some sort of response, where God's picking you because you're better than anybody else, you're more likable than anybody else, you're more holy than anybody else. It's not like that. I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but you're, you're not that big of a deal. I'm not that big of a deal. But yet you are God's chosen people. And you're holy. Not holy because you're better than anybody else, um, but because Jesus made you such. The holiness that has been transferred, imparted to you because of the work of Jesus, not because you're so good. And there has always been this temptation within Christianity to measure ourselves by our piety, the amount of goodness that we can produce out of us. But what Paul always reminds us in that indicative to an imperative movement is that's not something you earn and get to. That's not something you add to the work of Jesus. That's already who you are. You are holy and set apart because of what Jesus did. Not because of how good you are. Your goodness is a response to, not an earning of the declaration that you are holy. And you are dearly loved. You are recipients of love, not winners of a reward. Those are vastly different things. We give celebrities and famous athletes accolades because of what they have accomplished. But that's not why God's in love with you. Like a parent with unconditional love for a kid that they're madly in love with, made in their image, that they delight in, Our cultural values of individualism and self-sufficiency threaten the very existence of kindness today. We operate in a certain mentality that we are the ones who create our own destiny. We live inside of a cultural narrative that says that by your work and by pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, you create the opportunities that exist in front of you. You create your value, you create your worth, you create your popularity, your net worth. And how this threatens kindness is if we believe that it's our own independence that does that, we don't look at ourselves as part of a much larger whole. We look at ourselves as an independent entity. And that all the resources of the world exist in an economy of scarcity and not one of abundance. And so everybody else around us is actually not supposed to be the recipient of our kindness, but a competitor. With which we are competing for the resources and the accolades of the world. You see, when we live out of that narrative, it's virtually impossible to be kind. We need to remind ourselves it was Jesus who said, Whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Because for me, this is my body. And if you're unkind to someone, you are unkind to me. And if you're kind to someone, you're kind to me. We live in a day and an age where the voices around us want to separate us. So the threat is real, and kindness is becoming in scarce supply as a result. I told you this was rooted already way back when God first called his people when God formed the nation of Israel, called them out of slavery, in Deuteronomy 7, he told them, For you are a whole people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. God tells Israel back in the day, You're not that big of a deal. So don't give in to the temptation to think that you are. I will bring about all of these things, but you are great and you are holy and you are set apart and you are loved because I say you are. I can only imagine that for the Jewish mind that had claimed that as a national identity, how hard it would have been to hear Paul say the exact same words when he greets the Romans at the start of that letter. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be His holy people. Like the Lebanese Christian inviting the Syrian Muslim into their home and into their church. All the words that have been spoken about Israel that created their self-identity for millennia are now spoken over their enemies, the ones who have enslaved them, that they too are part of this same family. They are called, they are holy, they are loved. If you need a good reminder these days, if you're just feeling a little bit less than, and this would be a great exercise in front of the mirror every morning. I am called, I am holy. I am loved, I am called, I am holy, I am loved. And hopefully by the indicative reality of what's being spoken over you becomes the imperatives of how we live out our life. Because you will have power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. See, the rest of all of this doesn't make sense without that line. Our power to change and to transform the world, to upend culture. To lead it by serving it can only come when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then, not you will be my soldiers, and not you will be standing by in hatred or in anger or in threat, but you will be my witnesses, my martyrs, martyrias which we get the English word martyr. The Bible didn't even differentiate between the words of what it meant to give testimony to Jesus and what it meant to die for him. In all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here's the plan, people. Jesus says you are going to turn the world upside down. But not with weapons. In contrast to the cold-hearted bottom line of profit margins and market shares, Paul envisions a community that places something as inefficient and unprofitable as kindness at its heart. If you look at the list of the gifts of the Spirit, if you look at the list of the fruit of the Spirit, that does not look like a strategy that most people would employ in today's world to get a leg up. Or to win or to be successful or victorious. But my friends, this is the game plan that we've been given by Jesus. And the last thing that he said before he took off, excited about what was going to happen. And keep in mind now, Andy Stanley does so well to remind us of this, and over and over again, The Bible, as we know it, didn't find its form for another 400 years. They were doing all of this. They were upending culture. They were being so crazy, flipping their world upside down, and they were doing it without preaching the texts as we even know them today. They were doing it by being kind, by gathering together at tables and eating meals with people that nobody else would have ever associated with. And my friends, it is the followers of Jesus who throughout history were the first ones to take babies off of garbage piles and say that human life has dignity because it bears the image of God. And that slaves and free people will eat at the same table. And that someone who thinks different than you or is from the far-flung corners of the earth is of equal value to you. And so wherever Christians have gone over the face of the planet, from that day forward, helped build schools and improved people's livelihood. They started hospitals and cared for others. They started homes to bring people in, leper colonies for all of those who were forgotten, ridiculed, and left out. This is our DNA. This is our identity. It is our kindness that marks us out in the world. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves, wrap yourselves up in this with compassion, with Kindness. This is Jesus' weapon of choice to beat back the darkness. Not loud arguments, not bombs, kindness. For not with swords loud clashing or roll of stirring drums, but with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. I was taught to sing that as a little kid. And it seems so far from the way we hear even our own faith being expressed these days. Once upon a time I was reading some ancient literature all about what the ancient world was like in the first century, and I found it absolutely comical that because of the likeness of this Greek word for kindness and the word for Christ, that early first century Christians were often mistakenly identified before people who knew who what Christ was, they were called the kind ones and not the Christ ones. So we have actual secular Roman literature that exists to this day well documented where people thought Christians were just the kind ones. Would our culture say that about us today? The being in Christ is almost like synonymous with being kind. It just looks different. It chooses a different way to engage the world than everybody else. In an article passed on to me This week from one of our board of trustees at Dort was this line from Gypsy Smith, a British evangelist. It says there are five gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian, and most people will never read the first four. Sometimes I think we think about our faith as if we need to craft some giant long testimony that's this articulate story when sometimes Jesus said, just go and tell what the Lord has done for you. Talk about the kindness of God that you received and then reflect it out. Talk about the goodness of God that has defined your life and let other people share in that. You, my friends, were called to be kind. Isn't it incredible that that's all Jesus, th- these are the kinds of things that Jesus listed off would change and transform the world kindness you can ask the band to come on up we'll close us in song and i just want to pray that over us today will you open open up your posture open up your hearts and your minds your spirit for whatever it is that god wants to speak to us in this moment about the kindness that he desires to instill within us through his spirit that he promised would have power Father God, we thank you for all of your gifts. The ones that we readily embrace. And the ones that are harder to choose sometimes. And Father, we acknowledge we're having a hard time around us right now seeing exemplified kindness. Your loving kindness. Your steadfast, unfailing, goodness that is so deep-rooted within us that it comes out whether we're with our friends or our enemies. Father, we want to be kind. We want you to empower us with kindness. Father, lead us by your Spirit into places and opportunities today to be good to be kind, to take these adjectives that were used of you throughout the biblical story and let them be said of us. Not because we earned it, because you already have. And you're declaring this over us. Father God, help us to live into, to put on something as simple as kindness. In Jesus' name.